0: you're listening to the critical thought where we challenge our listeners to use critical thinking when examining the teachings of jehovah's witnesses
1: hi this is lady c
0: and this is jt
1: welcome to the critical thought so darren we want to welcome you to the program
2: it's a pleasure to be here and i'm so honored to be here with you on critical thought well we're glad to have you here we know it's been a little Time trying to get back together,
0: but we're glad that we were able to get together this morning. Yes, thank you so much.
1: So, Darren, we really thank you for being on the program, and we would like for you to tell us a little bit about your experience and how you became one of Jehovah's Witnesses.
2: I'm from Jersey City. My mother started studying in 1971 with a friend that she grew up with. They lived down the street from my grandparents' home in Jersey City, New Jersey. To give you some background, what I didn't know at the time, I was four years old. My parents were separated and my mother was vulnerable. And so the woman that lived up the street, they were childhood friends. She started talking to my mom about the truth. That's when, uh, that's back, I think it was when the the great teacher book was out, I believe. And um, all I can remember is that my mom started having this woman in her house like once or twice a week studying with her and I knew they were studying from the Bible and uh, my mom got baptized in 1971. And at that time, my, my her and my father um, got back together and my father started studying and he got baptized in 1972. However, between 1971 and 1972, my parents moved to a place called Ewing Township, which was just outside of Trenton, New Jersey. And um, so that's how, um, that was That was how I was, uh, how I grew up in the Jehovah's Witness organization. And um, I was from five years old up until five years ago, um, I was active as one of Jehovah's Witnesses, off and on for periods of time.
1: That's interesting that you're saying that. So I'm under the impression that perhaps you said that your parents were, you said they were separated at the time?
2: Yeah, my father, my father... <laughs> my father <laughs> Um, couldn't stay out the street. <laughs> he tells me that his father, who was kind of an enforcer, told him, Take your so and so back home. I don't want to hear nothing more about you in the street. And if I find out you're in the street, I kill you. <laughs> so my father came back home. And um, later on, my dad would admit to me that mainly he only really became one of Jehovah's Witnesses to save his marriage in his. He had moments of of, of honesty with me, um, a little bit too late, but he admitted that he never really wholeheartedly dedicated himself to Jehovah. It was kind of to save his marriage, um, you know. And
1: well, that's interesting because, like, I'm assuming, and, and like you said, he went back home, right? And then the religion is there waiting for you to mm-hmm. take part, and now you're thinking, "Hey, look, if I get, if I join this religion," Then maybe this will save my marriage.
2: Mm-hmm. But- and my, my father was my father was a salesman, right? Eleventh grade education, dropped out of high school in the eleventh grade. Retired as a vice president of territory sales for a major pharmaceutical company. However, my dad went to school with Vernon Powell, and I forgot the, uh, another guy who later became the vice president of Philip Morris. So if you know anything, JT, you're from North Carolina. If you know know about tobacco. So when my dad, before my dad got, while he was studying, the elders were pressuring my dad to leave his job. My dad probably would have been a millionaire had he kept that job easily because when his friend became vice president, my dad would have probably been high up in the Philip Morris company as far as sales. Um, Fortunately for him, he he was able to get a job with the, another, a pharmaceutical company in sales and did very well. But um, that was one of those things where they kind of dictated the kind of jobs you had, career path you you went down. Um, But because my dad was a salesperson (laughs) and the elders in the congregation at the time, I, I would say, I don't know how many elders there were, but probably the majority of them were in sales. So it was that kind of congregation elder structure. People were very good at, you know, giving talks and you know, going door to door, talking to people. My dad was very charismatic. So he quickly, I think by 1974, my dad became an elder and that was relatively quick, you know, from getting baptized in 72 to being an elder in 74. But see, at that period of time, there was another, there was a great need for people. And so because of who my dad was, you know, and and I'd say maybe Two or three years after being an elder, my dad became the PO, which they don't they don't call a PO anymore. And um, you know, he ran the food service, was one of the brothers that ran the food service. He gave talks, um, later became a, a temporary circuit overseer. And uh my dad was a I don't remember if it was district overseer, I don't know if they, they had a position called the district overseer. Um, but he was one of he was the chairman for years. At Vest Stadium, that's which is where we went to our district assembly. And our circuit assembly was in Buckingham, Pennsylvania. I don't know if you remember Buckingham, Pennsylvania Assembly Hall.
0: Yeah, I, I remember that period of time was during the 70s when the smoking issue came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, witnesses had to stop smoking within six months. or you are going to be disfellowshipped? Um, the reason I know is, like, like you mentioned, I'm from North Carolina. And during that time, tobacco was the number one cash crop for the whole state. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of businesses that were built around either directly with tobacco or they supported the infrastructure for tobacco. And a lot of brothers I know, they, they end up losing their jobs as well, or either they they lost privileges or got this fellowship. I mean, it was it was it was really bad. Um, yeah. And so I can see the situation your dad was in. And of course, you know, during that time, it was just explosive growth. I'm, I'm listening to the dates that you're given. all of these dates are Mm pre-1975 which means basically anybody who was coming in and studying you know they had the six months program going they was just throwing folks in the water everybody coming out dry them off move on and a lot of people became elders and ministerial servants because they simply was just so much growth going on at that time and 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 i I can understand that um one of the things that you mentioned that and i think me and lady C we've often talked about this is how the organization always Finds itself on people's doors of those who have problems or issues, mm-hmm. and of course the message just resonates. I mean, mm-hmm. Watch I, 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 I have no problem acknowledging that Watch Star has probably one of the best products in terms of religion.
2: Yeah. I mean,
0: they they sell a very good product. Yeah. they You just can't get delivery of it, but they go yeah, they, they they
2: prey on people's vulnerability. They prey on people's vulnerability. My, yes. my mother, my mother, um was the oldest of, of, of two children her and my uncle. My grandmother worked two jobs. My, her and my grandfather separated when my mother was like six or seven years old. So she had to take care of my uncle. And, um, you know, then she got married. My mother had never been with any other man. You know, she, she, she was, my dad was her, her only boyfriend, on um, her first love. And so when her and my dad split up, you know, that traditionalist generation, you know, my mother put up with a lot. Um, and my, my dad just couldn't stay on the street. He was a street person. And, and you know, his job really kind of <laughs> lended um, to him being able to stay in the street because he had all of New Jersey. He had Staten Island and parts of New York, parts of Brooklyn, I believe, was his territory. So, you know, my dad most of the time was not home. Um, except for meeting nights and and on the weekends when we were out, you know, had to be out in field service. Um, but during the week, my dad didn't come home till nine, ten o'clock. Um, Friday night, <laughs> Saturday night, um, he'd be in the street to one, two, three o'clock in the morning sometime. So, so one of the things I found interesting as I really start to think critically with the career paths that the society makes people choose. You know, my dad sold cigarettes, right, in the beginning, and then he <laughs> switched with cigarettes to selling baby formula and, you know, that kind of thing. But there were, there were elders and ministerials in the congregation that worked in the prison. And they had, you know, like, you're not supposed to be in a position where you might have to take somebody's life. They made six figures, you know, retired as lieutenant, captain, been in, you know, worked down Trenton State Prison and and other places, workhouse in Trenton. And they, you know, they had to transport prisoners, you know, as armed guards. And I said to myself, what's the difference between that and a a policeman on the street? You still have to be in a position, you still place yourself in a position where you might have to take somebody's life. And I know the society at that time was, you know, was admonishing people not to take those kind of jobs, but they, they certainly allowed these people to become elders. And serve in the congregation with these these type of jobs. Which- yeah,
1: can I can I ask a question? I want to step back yes. a second. Um, I want to really kind of cover the part about your father being an elder, and you're talking about these late nights that he's spending. Mm-hmm. So during the time of this activity, is he still serving as an elder?
2: Yeah, my my dad, it <laughs> <my laughs> served. As an elder for from 1974 up until after I graduated from high school, so that was 84, 85, 86. Um, he served as an elder. Okay. Now, mind you, um, when I got to be about 15, you know, as you come into um, manhood, I started seeing some of the things my dad was still smoking cigarettes he was hanging out um there was evidence um that he was messing around out there in the street when I got about when I got to be about 17 <laughs> I used to steal my dad's car every night and you know I would find stuff in the car other than cigarettes but I would find stuff in the car and I knew what he was doing but because I was an elder's kid preacher's kid you know I had to toe the line. And um, so that, for me, was the beginning of me really having a resentment towards my my father. My mom died as a result of smoking. My mom smoked cigarettes from the time she was 16 years old up until she died at 76. She never stopped.
1: Yeah, you know, that's amazing because um, here you have your father serving as an elder. Now, was your mother a pioneer or anything?
2: No. Okay. Um, my mother, well, my mom, my mom, auxiliary pioneer. Okay. Remember you know, Back in the 70s when they came up with the term auxiliary t- pioneer, I think right. it was, what, 30 hours or 40, 45 hours, something like that?
1: I, I think that was like 75 at one time, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. like,
1: let me ask you this question. So, um, when you went to the Kingdom Hall, you know, were you guys like an example, a stellar example in the congregation to people? Everybody thought you guys were the model family?
2: Yeah, I mean because I was an only child, um I didn't, you know, um I dressed the way I dressed because my father was impeccably dressed. Um it had to look right and um you know, my dad was under pressure from the, the society as an elder as a, as a uh, temporary circuit overseer as a presiding overseer to have everybody in line. Um but what I will say is we didn't ever had a personal study, (laughs) you know, my dad, um, he never really, there would be times when they had the campaigns about personal study and, you know, family study and all that kind of stuff where he would, (laughs) he would, um, kind of enforce that for about a week, you know, and then it would go right back to, you know, us just going out on Saturday, Sundays, um, not prepared, um, you know i never really studied the bible on my own i never had a personal study with either one of my parents so there was no real jehovah's Witness order in our house behind closed doors but when you know in the neighborhood at school anywhere else i was at was i had to be representative of one of jehovah's witnesses kids and uh,
1: well that's amazing what about your schooling what was your life like like when it came to you know like sports extracurricular activities you know when you want to get involved in different things i understand that you were um good in music and um so you want to give us a little bit of backstory about that
2: yeah when we when, in 1972 when we moved to trenton i was in first grade and i can remember we moved in october it was the end of october so the day, the first day that i entered first grade the next day was i think it was like on a thursday the next day they were having a Halloween party and my mom brought me to school and she explained to them that we're, you know, we're Jehovah's witnesses. We don't celebrate holidays. And, you know, like I, I didn't know anything about them. I'm six years old. I didn't know anything about that. And that was the beginning of me feeling alienated and, and feeling the pressure of being different. And, you know, at that age, you're very impressionable. And the kids didn't know, like they looked at me like I was strange, you know, like, they sat me over in the corner while the other kids had cupcakes and and, and candy corn. And, and you know, they, they kind of went from classroom to classroom, trick-or-treating. And I sat in the back in the little sandbox by myself. And, and uh, I can remember, you know, when you went to school at that time, they had like the moms would come and be like the teacher's aide, you know, help the teachers out. So this one woman, she felt so sad, so sorry for me. She she um, slid me a cupcake, and she took the icing off of it because it had Happy Halloween on it. And I was, you know, she would always do that up until I got out of elementary school. She would always, you know, slide me some candy or a piece of cake or something like that if somebody had a birthday. But um, growing up, you know, I I got into music. I I wanted to play sports. I was a pretty decent athlete too. But one of the things I will say that. Um, the Jehovah's Witness organization did for me was, you know, that it places a lot on you as a child. You know, you're told not to associate anybody. Everybody that's not in the organization is, is evil and ungodly. And, you know, you, you're waiting for, that's a heavy load for, you know, a, a child to carry into your teenage years. You know, you're waiting for the end of the world to come. Um, you, you're looking at your friends knowing that they're going to die. And and my, my father, more so than my mom, really alienated me from my peers. They couldn't come to the house and feel comfortable. You know, he he would always say, we're Jehovah's Witnesses. My son is not going to do this and do that. So I was never allowed to play sports. However, because most of the time with the practices after school and in the games were on meeting night, or on the weekend when we were out in field, service, you know, had to be out field service, so I couldn't play sports. Even though I was, from time to time, I was allowed to play in leagues because the leagues didn't interfere. I played soccer and I played tennis. But my dad was all about letting me take music lessons, so I started taking lesson music lessons. I was a drummer. I was ten years old when I started playing drums, and um, I, I got really good. And so. When I got into junior high up until my senior year, I was in all of the marching band, stage band, orchestra. Um, You know, we had competitions. And because the games were on Friday night, you know, the meeting was Thursday night or it was Saturday afternoon. So I could go out and field service and then still make the game in the afternoon. And a lot of other witness kids were in, you know, in the marching band or flag girls and, you know, that kind of thing. But um, I got really good and I started playing with guys who were like graduated in 70, 72 to about 78. And we had a band that was one of the top bands, high school bands in New Jersey. And um, I played with them. I would sneak out a lot to go play with them in bars. I wasn't old enough to get in. But my dad allowed me to do that because he knew them. There's, There's a couple guys that work for the township that my dad got to know. So he allowed me to, to associate with them. But it was still always one of those things where I had to live the double life. You know, the things I did and, and the lies I had to tell and the things I had to do to just to get away from my parents to be able to do the things that I enjoyed. It was a lot. It was a lot to carry.
0: Yeah, it's, it's amazing how one of the things the organization – ends up forcing so many of us to do, we have to do that double life. Um, you made the point about your dad didn't really do family study and that kind of stuff. And, and it was kind of sad when you think about how in the, in the world of Jehovah's Witnesses, everything is about image. Mm-hmm. And so you have like the super, you know, we've, we've had individuals uh, on the program who, you know, their parents make them study every page of the Watchtower, read every paragraph in the Awake Magazine because they want the image. And then you have other Witness parents who don't require it the, of their children or, 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 in their family, but they want to present that outside image when they step into the kingdom hall, or when they step at the assembly hall, that this, these are the things that we do on a regular basis. So you, you, throughout the entire organization from the, you know, from the rank and file publisher round up to the, to the, to the highest levels, everything revolves around the image, keeping mm-hmm. the, as we, as we say, keeping
2: the brand looking good.
0: That's all we cared about.
2: But you know what? It's 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 interesting. Like when I look back, my dad, like I I had friends in the congregation, peers or whatever, and we did the same things in the congregation that the kids in the neighborhood was doing. You know, especially when we got teenagers, you know, drinking and and and, and doing other substances, things like that. Um, I, I tell my wife sometimes, you know, we used to be at the assemblies and halftime we'd be we'd be sitting in you remember they used to have in the 70s they had those conversion vans where everybody had customer vans well there was a couple of families whose kids were like four four or five years older than me so they were driving but we were sitting in the van outside the assembly drinking get drinking cases of beer you know partying on uh, you know during the intermission and going back in the assembly you know feeling good getting through the assembly because most of us were going to the assembly just to, you know, to, 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 to proud, looking for the girls and girls looking for the guys. You know, you know, that culture that a lot of people don't know the culture that exists in the organization. When they go to the assemblies or they go to meetings, those on the outside, they don't know. that it's not much different than any other place, the church um, or any other organization. You know, when you're a teenager, you're a young adult, you know, you're forced with the things that you encounter going through those stages of life. And, um, so for me, a lot of the negative behaviors that I got into growing up started right in, the, right in the hall. Um, I can remember, um, I started smoking marijuana at about 16, I think. And my, and I can remember my father found some roaches in the ashtray and, um, he, he, and I, at first I was going to lie about it. And I said, you know what, let me just tell the truth. And I figured maybe if I told the truth, you know what, that that night was on a Thursday night. I walked into the hall and here comes three elders talking about, we want to talk to you. Um, there's been something brought to our attention. That's when they used to mark people. I don't know if you remember that, when they used to mark people. But I was unbaptized, so there was nothing that they could really do to me. But they wanted me to tell on everybody that I was you know, if there was any, they would ask me, is anybody in the congregation that's doing this? And, you know, of course, I wasn't going to do that, but a lot of my peers in the in the hall stopped associating with me because they figured because my father was who he was, they didn't want to get exposed. So a lot of people that I would have hung out with more kind of avoided me because they didn't want to get caught out there.
0: Oh, yeah, the big the big thing was with us, if you want to mate, meet at Gate 8. And so everybody knew at the Simley <laughs> <laughs> just crazy stuff, man. Just crazy stuff.
1: I, I think it's good that you're ta- kind of talking about this because you know when people see Jehovah's Witnesses, they um they have this squeaky clean image, and everybody's thinking that you know everything looks good on the outside, mm-hmm. and but there's a whole lot of stuff going on in the inside that people just yeah. Don't I know mean, about.
2: They, listen, when when we had a lot of witness people, witness families in our neighborhood, right, and so that was when the society was really discouraging or encouraging parents to discourage their children from associating with anybody in the neighborhood that wasn't in the organization. But fortunately and unfortunately for me, there was a lot of witness families in in the neighborhood I grew up in. However, our parents partied together. So there there was two or three families that I kind of became family, extended family. But my parents on a Friday, Saturday night, man, they'd be drinking and listening to music and dancing and hanging out like they was in a bar. Um, And, you know, when you're young, you don't pay attention to how much and and how often off the hook these parties were. But when you look back on it and when I talk to it's amazing when I talk to other kids who grew up in the hall um that no longer in an organization they tell me man i'm I'm amazed at some of the stories you're talking about you know how many elders were giving talks drunk coming to the kingdom hall drunk you know we had two elders that could drink a half a fifth of scotch a day and come to the kingdom hall and, and, and give parts and counsel people and all that and um there was some elders that i knew they drank because you could smell the liquor coming out of their pores um my dad um there was several times there was some really shady stuff going on. My dad had a uh, guy who he studied with, later became a PO, who worked for the public advocate, went somewhere, got drunk, and because of who he was, he had a badge. They called my dad. This just twice this happened. They called my dad at like 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. My father had to go into Pennsylvania to get him because they, they wanted to take him to jail, but they didn't want to, you know, expose a public servant um, who this guy, he was pretty high up in the city government, and he was a PO in a congregation at the time. So my dad had to go get him and take him home. Um, there was a, there was a time one time where my father was in a club. They used to go hang out. We lived across the bridge from Pennsylvania. And there were a lot of bars that my dad and some of the elders would hang out in because it was like a place where nobody would find them. But this one particular night, my dad, and he was a PO at the time, he was sitting at the bar talking to some woman and he was getting ready to light up a cigarette and he turned around and he saw four or five other friends from the congregation. And it's interesting because of who my it's, it's the politics that's played in the congregation. Nobody said nothing to him. Well, one of my mother's friends came up to him and said, you know, you you know, you ain't supposed to be doing this, and I ain't gonna say up but you need to get your act together. That's all I was saying to my that, you know. Um, And it was a a lot of that kind of stuff, covering up stuff in the congregation, because if you were an elder or if you were the son of a PO or circuit overseer or somebody that's high up, a lot of times, you know, stuff was covered up or or glossed over. You know, you didn't get the full wrath of the Judiciary Committee. Um, And so for years, my dad and other elders, there was elders. In the congregation, there's two elders that put their wives in the hospital on more than one occasion. And the brothers knew about it. They didn't do nothing about it. So, you know, that's how I grew up. And, um, you know, I think people need to know the truth about what goes on. Because when I talk to other people who grew up in the organization, it's such a common story. It's like, you know, I, I was I was naive for a long time. People just don't know the kind of stuff that goes on in the organization especially on the congregation level. Um, you know, what's being exposed now is the organization, but people need to know what goes on in the congregation. And there's a lot of stuff that people don't know about. There's a whole counterculture.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you're, you're bringing this up because, you know, since we've been activists online, you know, we may encounter people that will look at our channel and they'll start saying, why are you attacking the Jehovah's Witnesses, these are some, some of the nicest people that you ever meet. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, we know everybody didn't live the way you're explaining. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do remember when my mom was studying and she was going to get baptized, the elder in the congregation that was studying with my mom, him and his wife, mm-hmm. they partied at our house every, every Friday. <laughs> <laughs> I was a little kid. I was like seven. But, you know, they partied. Mm-hmm. And and my mom was friends with them for years after mm-hmm. she got baptized. But I think when mom got baptized, I think her partying kind of came to an end. Yeah. But um. But the couple that was studying with them, they would come over there and the and, and my dad was military, and so oh, they yeah. had other military people over to the house as well. So they like were hanging out with the military people. Mm-hmm. You know, it was crazy.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's so true. It's- and and the thing of it is, is that it kind of it kind of goes against what Jehovah's Witnesses often advocate that we're the same around the world. There's there so many uh, things that go in this organization. We look at like the Catholic Church and we'll say, well, you know, the, the bishops are protecting the priests. Well, the same thing happens in the Jehovah's Witness religion. It's just with a different title. Mm-hmm. Uh, elders will know things. Uh, they'll know about friends. And, and and the most important question that has all—this is the most important question that is ever asked. Who knows about this mm-hmm. and the answer that you give to that question it literally will determine oh, what yeah. direction many times uh issues will go yes, if indeed. nobody knows about it except the four of us in this room this is where it's gonna stay yes, so indeed. all this stuff about concern about god's righteous stand man that's just that's just they, they're smoking your eyes they're smoking your eyes believe um, me as
2: I, and, when i got older i just realized to go back like when you're talking about my education um by the time I got to high school, I was, my, my music skills had increased exponentially. I was really, really good at playing drums. And the band director at the high school I went to came a couple times to talk to my father. You know, um, my dad never really, he came to a couple games because it was like after service and, and some of the other kids' parents would come. So it was kind of a witness thing to come to the football game. And um, when I introduced my band director to my dad, my dad, he was telling my dad how talented I was, and that you know I really could go to school for music, and and have a really good career in music. He said I had the the ability to be a professional musician. And um, of course, my dad wasn't trying to hear that. And at the time, in the seventies and eighties, you know there was this big thing go to Bethel. Um, go to go to trade school for two years, um, or go become a missionary or full-time pioneer. And so as an elder son, like I was discouraged specifically from my dad. But a lot of the, the the climate and the congregation and the organization at the time was you you come out of high school. A lot of people dropped out of high school early. That was another big thing that a lot of people don't know. Like a lot of kids because they figured that the end of the world was going to come and you don't need to go to school or, you know, um, me, I wanted to go to school and I love music. And, um, towards the end and the end of my high school year, I applied to the local colleges and because I, I, I didn't test very well. I was a solid AB student, but I didn't test very well. So I didn't score high enough for my SATs to get into the state, the local state schools, Rutgers, Trenton state, Rider college. There was, you know, the local schools in the area, but I don't know how I got these scholarships. Well, I I I'll, I'll go back. How I got the scholarships was my band director somehow was on this they had this um this board of band directors, this band directors association. And so um he got to know four or five musical directors at HBCUs. And so he spoke to um the band director at Florida a and uh, the band director at Southern University, and the band director at Gramlin University. And they came to see me. I didn't know all of this. Um, he used to just tell me before we went out on the field, you need, you need to look right today. You need to look right today. And so um, they were coming scouting me. So at the end of my senior year, I had three full music scholarships. Um, And I can remember Florida A&M is where I wanted to go. Because they had just done the Pepsi commercial, and two of my other friends from high school were going there, so it was going to be. I was hoping that it would be the three of us from the school going down there, and um, the band director at the time um, was Doctor Doctor Bird, who was Donald Bird from Donald Bird and the Blackbirds. He came to my house, my parents' house, and sat and talked to my mom for about two hours before my dad walked in the house. And when my dad walked in the house, the man got up and said, you know, I'm Dr. Bird. You know, I'm here. Your son is ex- you know, extremely talented. We would love to give him a full ride. And my dad said, as he's walking up the stairs, he stuck the man's hand. And he said, listen, we're Jehovah's witnesses. That boy is going to school where I say he's going to school and he don't need to study music. The end of the world is coming. And, um, that's it. He walked upstairs. And and I can remember Dr. Bird saying to my dad, he says, he says, I have to respect you, sir. This is your son, because at the time I wasn't 18. He said, but one one thing you need to know, he said, you're killing your son. He said one of two things going to happen. He said either he's going to leave your household and never come back or he's going to end up either on drugs or with some kind of other serious situation going on with him. And um, I ended up going to Trenton State College, which is like two blocks from my house. And um, by my my sophomore year, I was on academic probation because I, I was just miserable. You know, I was, every couple of weeks I was thrown out of the house, you know, because um, I didn't you know, I had to go to the meetings. And, you know, I, I it just was a mess. Um, and so I ended up going to um Culinary school by default because I worked, um, I had enough credits to graduate in my junior year from high school. So I worked half a day and went to school half a day. And um I worked for one of my classmates' families who owned a bakery in a deli. And um when I found out I was gonna be on academic probation, I worked over the summers in college, and she said to me, she says on um, you're really good at cooking. She said, do you ever think about being a chef? She said, you know, chefs, and I knew nothing about a chef. She said, chefs make really good money. She said, it's hard work. She said, but you, you're really good at it. And, um, I wrote a paper, uh, scholarship paper to Nestle foods. And I got a scholarship to go to culinary school. And because the culinary school was in my dad's territory, my dad let me go to this community college down near Atlantic city. And, um, Part of the stipulation was for that was that I had to go to the meetings, go out, serve. But um, I was just looking for a way to get away from my environment because it was just so toxic and debilitating. Um, you know, my life in the organization as a kid was I it just I just was such a negative experience for me because being in an organization you're you're discouraged from having any kind of individuality. Any kind of autonomy, any kind of, you know, um, discovering yourself, your self-worth, your identity, um, everything is told to you and and dictated to you. And so that was my life um, for a long time.
1: You know what? That had to be very hard because you were getting two messages. You get your parents partying it up, father out in the streets doing everything he's big enough to do. And he's got leadership in the congregation ain't even doing Bible study with you, not even really getting you involved with Watchtower curriculum. And yet when you get in these scholarships and things like that, he's like, oh, we can't do that because we're Jehovah's Witnesses. But he's not even living up to the Jehovah's Witness name.
2: My mother told my father, see, my mom, my mom was as pure as the driven snow. The only thing my mother ever really did was smoke cigarettes all her life. And it took her life. But my mom, you know, I've never seen my mom drunk. Um, you know, I, I knew in some ways I couldn't ask for better parents because they provided me for me financially. They exposed me to a lot of culture. You know, I'm the person of who I am today. So I don't want people to get the wrong impression. I had wonderful parents, but this organization did a job on our family, and people didn't really realize it to the end. The amount of hypocrisy and covering up, and and just you know deception and, and image, you know, maintaining an image. They didn't know all of that, Um, and and the ones who did, there were a lot. There was there were some who knew. There were some elders who knew that my, you know, because the elders, there was some. There was four or five elders. They all hung together. They went out and drank. They went to bars, you know. Um, they they messed around with women, but it was all kept between the boys, kind of thing, and so and nobody questioned it because they had the authority. Um, but when it came to me, when I started having issues um they looked at me well you know you're the spoiled only child and your parents do everything for you but they didn't know you know the conditions under which I grew up and a lot and a lot of what's going on with me now as far as my reputation my image in the organization people don't know and when I speak about it they just look at me oh you're just complaining you're bitter and you decided to leave the organization they didn't know the hell that I that I endured for 30 40 years in organization you know when I look back on it I'm you know I've been around an organization for 50 years, and I never believed it, never believed it. And it's hard because I, I had to tell my father one time, I said, towards the end, I said, do you realize the position you put me in? And I started to see a psychiatrist, and one time my dad came to the session, and the psychiatrist says, my father said, um, you wanted your whole Jehovah's Witnesses, aren't you? He said, yeah. He said, um, but let me ask you something. He said, you pay for music lessons, right? He said, yeah. He said, but what, what did you think that was going to lead to? He said, most people whose kids get into music, they take lessons because they want to get into a band. They want to, you know, play with other musicians. He said, that's what music is all about. He said, well, I, I let him go because I knew that was something that he could do by himself. He said, but that's not the point of being a musician. The point of being a musician and artist is to get in that community and to immerse yourself because it's a discipline. He said, so what did you think your son was going to do, just sit in the basement and play drums by himself the rest of his life? She said, so you, do you realize, like, you, you were starting your son up for failure from the beginning by not supporting him? And he said, then, she, then he said, you know, when you cut that your son off from that, what effect did you think that would have on him? You know, why do you think he's here today at my office dealing with depression and, and you know um, – substance abuse and, and those things. Why do you think he's here? Because of the environment. And my dad had no choice. And then my mother smoked herself to death because she had to watch her only child live in misery for the, for the a large part of my life, you know? So fortunately, um, I was able to get away from my parents for a significant period of time and do some work in some areas and, um, that was the beginning of the end for me with the Joe's organization. But I needed to kind of go back. Um, I went to school. I um, I graduated. The school that I went to, I was the third African-American to graduate from this program. I had a 3.75 average. And so because I had the average, I wasn't the valedictorian or the cum laude of the class, but I was second or third in the class. And so when because of that, they allowed your parents to say something. So, my dad got up there at my graduation from Corona school and went on a 45 minute public discourse about Jehovah's Witnesses and why education. They realized that I was so embarrassed and so ashamed and so angry that my dad would embarrass me like that. Like, it was, you know, instead of acknowledging my achievement, it was all about preaching you know this doctrine which he did himself didn't buy into and my mother said kenneth like you know she said why w- why would you do that to him so you know again it's all about an image and um
1: okay we got double click on that they let him talk for 45 minutes and didn't 45,
2: stop him? 45 minutes and, oh my and god in, in and around because there were other parents that went up there i mean it was It was about a three, four hour graduation, but the top three people in the class, which I was one of, they allowed their parents to speak. Some of them, both parents spoke. They took 10, 15 minutes apiece, and they talked about how the child got into cooking. That was the thing. I thought my dad was going to get up there and say, yeah, you know, he's always under his grandmothers and his aunts and that's how he got into cooking. And I'm so proud of him. He went on this thing about, well, as Jehovah's Witnesses, we don't, you know, we don't get it. We don't value education even though education is important and i'm glad my son got an education but you know the end of the world and he he started quoting scriptures about the end of the you know all that stuff about the new system and how we should look to god and and jehovah and and it was just i i just wanted to find the nearest rock to crawl up under
0: yeah i I think it's important that people understand um one of the one of the things we try to emphasize on our channel is that there are really two aspects of Jehovah's Witnesses, what they teach and the culture. Mm-hmm. And what you your story really demonstrates is the culture. Uh, the, the Watchtower has given us a false sense of values. Mm-hmm. The values are literally upside down in terms of reality, in terms of the real world in which we live in. Jehovah's Witnesses, they operate upside down. What we consider right and what others consider wrong, they, they, they've been flipped. Doing well in the world of Jehovah's Witnesses means you do bad. I mean, it, it's just a, it's just a constant. Uh, the, the value system is just literally turned upside down. Other people rejoice when their children do well. Witnesses, they 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 they're ashamed when their children doing well. I mean, it, it's it's crazy, mm-hmm. and and I think the point that you made about how um, the 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 psychologist asked your father, you know, what did you think? And it really goes to show the type of cognitive dissonance that a witness has. On one hand, they want you to do certain things, but then they realize I got to pull back because organization, organization, organization. And, and that's what kind of happened to you. Um, I, I just wanted to just make the point that you mentioned about your opportunity uh, to get into a you know, historical black college and, and through the band program. And anyone who is familiar with historical black colleges, uh, the bands many times are bigger than the football teams in terms of excitement on the college campus and, and, and how it's viewed in the community. And the gentleman that you uh, had to deal with who came to your house, uh, Dr. Donald Byrd, um, we, we're, we're so, uh, many people are actually very familiar with, with him. They may not know exactly who he is, mm-hmm. but he became the, um, one, one of the professors at Howard University. Mm-hmm. And part of his thesis was he basically put together a little band, yep. and that band became known as the Blackbirds, as yeah. you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And if you go online, you will see that the Black Birds, what really was just a project that him and and some of his students were doing, it Mm -hmm. turned into literally a career opportunity because his band went on to perform some huge hits back in the 70s. Uh, One of them that we are familiar with because we live here in Washington, D.C., is called Rock Creek Park. Yes, sir. And Rock Creek Park uh, is uh, an area. Yeah, Rock Creek Park uh is an area here in D.C., As if you like, if you live in Philadelphia, everybody knows what the plateau is. Mm -hmm. Well, here in Washington, DC, we have what's called Rock Creek Park, Mm -hmm. and they have all types of summer activities out there. And he made a huge hit off doing that. And Mm -hmm. and the point is to think that here is a person who looked at your talent, looked at your skill, and said, This dude
2: is good. Yeah, well, see, I was, I was, I was, I ran the drunk, I ran the percussion section. The 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 my fellow students including the band director wanted me to be the drum major but i i love playing drums so much and i and because we went to a, a higher proportion white to black high school uh, i was the one who brought our music up to time so we were playing all stuff and i went to the director said listen you know we can't be playing this stuff from the 70s we need to be playing this this and this and we need to you know like instead of just a, a full four we need to be out there dancing like i was already ahead of myself in terms of the times and what other bands now we had inner city schools that were doing some some pretty innovative things and I wanted to do that because you know when you're at a football game y'all y'all battling in the stand and so my high school became one of the one of the better bands when we when I was at my high school and um to go back to Donald Dr. Bird he was he had left Howard and came to Florida AM when I met him he had been at, at Howard for a long time and Howard um if anybody doesn't know was like the Juilliard or the Berkeley for HBCUs as far as fine arts I mean you got Donnie Hathaway and Roberta Flack and oh absolutely you know like the list just goes on but that same day when that when he left I ended up because I, I was so mad at my father I always had access to um, the music room at my high school. And so I went to the high school, and he was, Dr. Birdhead went up there to talk to um, the band director to tell them. They, when I got there, they were talking about them Jehovah's Witness people. You know, they, I, I walked in on them. He said, how can this, you know, just listening to them, how can they do this to their kids? And But the drummer for the Commodores was there. I met him. And um, he had seen me play, and he he encouraged me to keep playing. Um, but he was a graduate and alumni of Florida a and
0: Yeah.
2: And Florida A&M had just the year before in eighty three, they had just done that Pepsi commercial. I don't know if you remember that. That was the first black college to do a, a, a commercial. And um, so yeah, I remember. would be, a, you know, part of the the the, the one hundred Rattlers, you know. But um, it wasn't it wasn't to be. Yeah. And this is why we and this is
0: why we need for you to tell your story, because, see, when we uh, put this up on the Internet, there are going to be so many uh, people who were either raised as Jehovah's Witnesses, baptized or unbaptized, who this story is going to resonate with them. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's going to resonate with them is because there are literally thousands and thousands of Jehovah's Witness kids all around the world Mm -hmm. who have had their teachers, their professors, pull their parents to the side and say, your child is talented. Mm-hmm. Let this child's talent grow. Mm-hmm. And the witness
2: parent, shut
0: it down. Shut I, I it will,
2: down. I will say this. This is something else that people need to know, especially if you grew up in the 70s and 80s. Because of the culture and in the, in the organization, uh, a lot of people that I grew up with, I would say seventy percent of the people I grew up with are no aren't, aren't Jehovah's Witnesses. Most of them never became the ones who did. That I know aren't in the organization anymore. Thirty um, percent are still in the organization, and for them it works, or they have the, they have that malleability, that personality that accepts that form of high control um, and manipulation, but. What people need to know is that in the organization at that time, a lot of my friends, once you got 17, 18, if you want to get baptized, it's out. You got put out. And a lot of people turned to drugs, alcohol, some committed suicide, some went to jail, you know, because they they just were on the street, you know, and, and totally um, isolated from any kind of support system. And a lot of us made some wrong choices. Um, But we weren't, we didn't have the coping skills and um, to deal with those sort of situations and circumstances. A lot of us were ill-equipped and, uh, you know, the more I talk to people who I grew up with, the more commonality we have in our stories. Um, Some of us managed to make it through and others just, you know, I, I know two or three people that are still in mental institutions. Um, can never quite get themselves together, in and out of jail, um, strung out on drugs and alcohol, could never really, really get themselves together. And so people need to know that. Like this whole process that you guys are involved in, this work that you're doing, this is this is soulless for a lot of us. It it helps us in the healing process. Um and I and I hope that my story helps other people um who were who don't know what to do um you know a lot of people just stay in the organization because they don't want to lose their families they don't want to lose their friends their social circle most people that i know i don't think a lot of people truly believe what the organization has as far as doctrine they just stay because it's just become a way of life for them and they're miserable um they won't admit it but they're miserable and um you know i just got to the point where for me i just i wanted to live i was tired of dying and i had to make some decisions um you know so yeah they stay for the social aspect and
0: interestingly it's interesting because the data actually backs up what you've said uh the pew study which dealt with all religions in the in america mm-hmm. what they showed was that the jehovah's witnesses as a religious denomination mm-hmm. they have one of the highest churn rates, churn rates, mm-hmm. uh people coming in and leaving, people coming in and leaving. Mm-hmm. And there are young people have the highest rate of individuals who leave the faith. Mm-hmm. Um, that is an absolute fact.
2: Mm-hmm. I can remember my, my dad study, he brought well you did the term he brought a lot of people into the truth. You know, you know that saying, right? So oh, yeah. <laughs> my my dad studied with a lot of people. My parents helped a lot of people come into the organization. But um there was a family who they were a young family, they had two young children, much younger than I was at the time. And um, they the the husband, his dad owned a very lucrative business. I don't know whether it was cleaning or it was a hardware store, but it was a lucrative business. And they studied with my parents and, and they and, and they were like, Well, you know, this is you sure this is the end? And, and you know, this is 1975, going into 1976. My dad was like, Yes, you know. The prophecy tells that you know, all the scriptures and the material from the from the literature um, was pointing to 1975 as the end of the world. And so this man, newly married with two young children, gave up his business, donated a large part of the money to the society and bought a house with the other piece of the money and took a job in the same industry but working for somebody now. 1975 came and went, 1976 came and went, and 1977 came. And I can remember this man ringing our doorbell. And he and when I opened the door, he was like, "Tell your father to come out here right now." And he said, "You lied to me." And my and it was nothing my father could say. He wanted to literally fight my father on on our doorstep because he felt that betrayed. His marriage was on the rocks, and um, he later got this fellowship. I don't know what for, but they never came back. But that was just another awakening moment for me to see that you know all it, all the while it's, it's interesting. Like one of the things I wanted to say was with critical thinking. Like when you you know intuition and critical thinking go hand in hand. And common sense, a lot of this stuff is common sense. Like it's right there in your face. You know, look at it. You know, look at all the all the fail, fail prophecy, false doctrine, all these things, and now the exposure. And the society does not want to accept the fact that they've misled people for, for over 100 years. And they continue. Now they're playing a the shell game. Now this is overlapping generation. At one time it was the 1914, you know, and there's no real empirical evidence to bolster what they're saying. It's true. But people, because of the, the indoctrination is so strong and people, it's funny how people want to believe something that's so incredible. The more incredible you make it, the more they believe it. They just have to believe in something. And, you know, one of the things that woke me up was like, I don't have to believe that, especially when I can look at it and see that it's not true. Um, And it's interesting how they just label people. You know, I've watched so many of the broadcasts. They're, they're so good at um critically analyzing the society's broadcast, using their information to expose them. And I, I said this to my dad, I said, before he died, I said, you know, you so the society is talking about how they're the only true God's organization, but they read the scripture, how God is going to expose it. So what, 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 what do you think if the reality is that Jehovah's exposing the Jehovah's witness organization in according to scriptural prophecy? See, they don't want to acknowledge that, but it's happening though, you know, with the child, Molestation—the cases all over the world, especially in Australia. Um, you know, it's just sad, and and they, they just they just get caught out. I listen to the lies. They, um, I forgot the elder from the governing body under oath. They use a scripture about um, disfellowshipping and, and disassociation, and they asked him, said, so, "Well, um, they asked, they said, well." The congregation deals with these individuals. That's a lie. The elders deal with these individuals. The scripture, in the context of what it's saying, is that if if, if a brother commits a sin against you, we have something against him. You go to him. If if he doesn't understand, if he doesn't change his his attitude, you take two more with you. If they don't take, if they don't are not able to justify or rectify the situation. What's the next thing in the scripture? It says take them before the congregation. It says nothing about judicial committee or body of elders. It says take them before the congregation. Why? Because if you took them before the congregation, now you got 100 people with, with different life experience that can look on the situation and maybe have more of an impact on the outcome. But no, they, they manipulate the scripture and they went from... Take it to the congregation, the formal judicial committee, and and the congregation doesn't deal with the dis-fellowship and The elders disfellowship the person. Then they announce to the congregation that that person is no longer one of Jehovah's Witnesses.
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah, they, <laughs> that that's 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 always the case. They 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 like we said before, man. When, when you write your own rules to the game. You you can't lose. I mean, it's it's just that simple. You it, it's you 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 you're barking up a tree that that you'll never climb because it's their it's their ball, their rules, their court. All you bring is your little tennis shoes with you. That's, that's all you can. Right. You.
1: <laughs> so Darren, you, you said that, you know, you had started off, you embarked in this career trying to get into music. You didn't get a chance to do that. Then you went to school to be a chef and you graduated at the top of your class. Mm-hmm. So what type of work are you doing now? You want to talk about that?
2: Yeah. I'm right now. I'm a, I'm a private chef. Um, I've, I've been a chef instructor. I, I taught it. Um, I taught for a couple of nonprofit agencies, um, I'm going back to get my master's in social work. I want to be um, and get my graduate certificate in nonprofit leadership because I want to have my own um, nonprofit organization focusing on voc rehab. Um, I think culinary arts is a viable means of, of, of procuring marketable job skills. And um, I've had the, the privilege to work um, with, with some people um, who have done that. And so it's kind of inspired me. But right now, I'm a private chef. Um, I'm not going to say this person's name, but her mom is one of Jehovah's Witnesses. That's how I met her. Um, She's a client of mine. Um, I've worked for athletes and entertainers, um, and I've traveled with them. But um, right now, that's what I'm doing. I'm I'm a private chef, and um, I also work in the field of mental health. So, because of my life experience I'm able to reach people who are at risk so I work I work sometimes in a clinical setting I do life skills workshops I work with people in recovery um and and um I do community outreach so that's what I'm doing currently um you know I've had a great career as a chef um those people who know me they know, that's what they call me chef um I've traveled I've worked in the Caribbean I've worked um, all over the United States, primarily up and down the eastern seaboard. I um, was in Texas for a while because um, I worked with a person who played for the NBA. Um, and I worked with him up until he he died. And I worked for another person who retired from um, one of the teams in, in down there in Texas. Um, but I, I would like to talk about how I started waking up from this organization. Um for me, it was just uh so I got baptized in nineteen ninety. Um <laughs> and it's interesting the day I got the day I got baptized, um <laughs> I was sitting in the bar drinking and, and smoking weed at the time. Cause I I got baptized just just to fit in. Um you know and I spent the majority of my life trying to please my parents and it's sad and it took a long time for me to admit that and in a lot of people in this organization a lot of kids um that's what they do and um it just it 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 took a lot for me I've 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 been through treatment and therapy it took a lot for me to get to where I am today you know the person you see before you is not the person that you that you would have known 20, 30 years ago. Um, I've had to come through a lot. Um, But by 1994, I was 92. 92, I got this fellowship. Um, I came back in 1996, I think. I got reinstated. And then by 97, I... I disassociated myself because at that point, that was the beginning of me kind of waking up. Um, It's interesting what happened was um, I just would run into people in the settings that I was in who were Jehovah's Witness kids, dealing with the same issue I was dealing with. And so that was the beginning of me talking to other people like we're talking now as a support system. And I started listening to their experience because I thought I was you know, this the what I was dealing with, I thought I was by myself. I thought I was the only one dealing with it. And then I found out that I'm not by myself and that this is a common experience. Um, So I disassociated myself and I stayed out. Um, I got a really good job in New York. I worked in New York um, off and on for about 12 years. The company I worked for. um, And I was going to the hall off and on, but it wasn't like I was more focused on more therapeutic things to help me deal with the issues I was having. So I was in other support groups, other fellowships. And um, what ended up happening was the job I had closed. And for me, because I had never finished college, even though I went to culinary school, I was ashamed. That was a lot of, you know, I carried a lot of guilt and shame. And that's one of the things I like to say to people, please. This organization will manipulate you and ruin your life through guilt and shame. It's one of the main things that they use to control people. And it's so, so, so toxic. So if you're dealing with that, please get help because you can't carry this by yourself. That's the ultimate message I want to say to people. Don't don't deal with this on your own. Seek professional help because mental illness is real, you know um you need to be able to establish support groups and the work that you guys are doing is one of the, so important to help people like me like us who have suffered for so long dealing living a life in an organization that is so controlling and manipulative and 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 really has ruined a lot of people's lives and i'm not sitting here bashing the organization it's just a fact um but going back to me waking up When I disassociated myself in 97, my job ended in New York. So I worked as a private chef, I traveled, but around 2000, I started working in New York and I worked in New York to, I think 2013. My, the company, um, they sold the brand, so I took a severance, and I, I lived off of this money. I lost the sure. I moved back home, which was a definite no-no in retrospect. But my dad talked me into coming back home, and I said, well, I could save money. Um, I could go finish my degree. And for about a year, everything was okay. But then my dad, the brothers was pressuring him because I was living in his house. I was disassociated. So my dad started going on these rampages. You know, I had to go to meetings or I got to hit the street. So I started going back to the hall. And in 2000, let me go back. I think it was 2010, I got reinstated. And from 2010 to 2014, I was traveling a lot. So my publisher's card, even though I was, I, I was pretty much inactive, but whenever I, wherever I traveled, I would go to the meetings, I would go out in service, but I was never part of the congregation. So when I moved to Delaware, I came down here in 14. Um, I, I hadn't really been going to the hall at all, but it's all I knew. That my cousin brought me down here to Delaware and he was part of the AME church. And it's funny how I don't know if it's God or the universe shows you things. I went to this church, and the pastor of this church wasn't former Jehovah's Witness. And when I told her, she was like, "Well, where did you go to church?" I said, I, "You know, I was hesitant because I, I was kind of ashamed." And when I said Kingdom Hall, she looked at the other pastors. She looked at me. I said, "Oh, you got." And we knew the same people. We hung in the same circles, but we didn't know each other. And she told me her story. And how she came out of the AME church and she met a guy in the hall. They got married and the marriage is a mess. And she ended up going back to the AME church. Now she's a, a pastor in the AME church. But that was the start of me. And she started sharing some information with me. But she did it in a way like she didn't really try to influence me one way or the other. But she said some, she would say some critical things to me. And over that period of time, I started thinking about it. But fast forward. Started going to the congregation down here in Delaware. And when I got into the congregation, of course, the brother sent the publisher's card. And see, this is stuff I didn't know. But they sent a report ahead of me. And, and um, I can remember when I got to this one congregation, they treated me pretty well until they got my publisher's card. And then the brother stopped speaking to me. You know, I come to the meeting and normally, hey, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like they, they're they not coming over to speak to me. And I went to the, the secretary and said, did you get my publisher's card? He said, Yeah. I got all the information i need to know about you buddy i said wait a minute what happened so one of the brothers who was a bethelite him and i got into it because when my wife and i started dating it's it's funny how they want to be and so in control of every aspect of your life now mind you i'm a new i'm a new brother in the congregation um they treated me with such suspicion and when i my wife and i started dating I can remember we went to the, the supermarket and it was a sister that saw her. Now we weren't holding hands; we were just going into the supermarket together. <laughs> the next, I was traveling too as a private shipping time. So that weekend I went away, and my wife called me and she says, "You know the brothers had me and my mother in the library questioning me, questioning us about you." And see, my mother, my mother-in-law was like she's one of them. They didn't, they didn't grow up in the hall. And she, she laid around. She said, listen, don't be, y'all need to leave me to so so alone. Don't be questioning. You got any questions about Darren? Y'all need to talk to Darren. She said, I told my wife that I think he would make a great husband. Him and I got a connection. I don't see anything spiritually or otherwise that's wrong with him. So when I got back, they pulled me in the library. We, mean." My wife in the library about four or five times while we was dating and i finally told the elders i said listen i said my father would be down here because my dad came down to meet my wife and my in-laws before we got married and one of the brothers in the congregation knew my dad because he's from jersey and they were on the, the building committee or whatever it was had known each other for 30 something years and so the elders saw that my dad was on a level, so they kind of backed off from me for a while. But the, the breaking point for me was, um, I was going out service regularly, and I was I was attending the meetings. I was commenting. I was I was visiting the friends, especially the elderly and the shut in. And um, you know, I was dating my wife, and I was trying to be the model person, wanting to get married and maybe try to reach out for privileges in the congregation. But anyway, I lived on I lived on the beach at the time, and they used to do the cart work. So I, after service, you know, I was renting a room at the time. I would go up there and just hang out with the with the friends on the boardwalk and the cart work. Well, one of the elders came up to me at a meeting. and Was like, "Well, brother, you know, it's been brought to our attention that you're 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 in the cart work, and you know, we we we're gonna we don't we want to tell you that you know we don't want you up on the boardwalk because we don't know you. And nothing scriptural, nothing from the branch, no no, no f- backup as far as what he's counseling me on. So I didn't say nothing to him. I was extremely angry. I wanted to cuss him out. But I told my wife what happened. And um, we got married. And right after we got married, they changed... They had a list, and there's one brother came up to my wife, said, Oh, sister so-and-so, um, would you, you know, what what schedule do you want? And I'm looking at him, I said, Wait a minute, how are you gonna come to my wife in front of me as I'm the head of the house and ask her about being in the cart work when that's something that we should be doing as a couple? I said, That's an embarrassment to me. My wife qualifies, but I don't qualify. So I went back to these brothers, and um, they told me they came with the, the thing from the branch office, and it was a scripture about moderate in dress, gets along with others. It was some something to that, but it was something that I qualified for. I fit the qualifications, but because I was, they didn't know me. See, that's another thing. It is a culture within culture. They call these people down here in, the, in Delaware the Mennonites. Like if you didn't grow up down here, they don't know you. They treat you like an outsider. And um, like they they thought I dressed too, you know, I'm coming bow tie. I'm, I'm a city guy. You know, these are country people. They're like they thought I dressed too worldly and and too, you know, too flashy or whatever. And I said, what does it have to do with preaching God's word? And I said, you know, you come at me. And then the suggestion was, now mind you, I'm traveling, and at the time I got a job as a department manager. in in a major high-end supermarket. They told me, well, in order for us to to give you the privilege of being out on the cartwork, you need to be seen out on Saturdays, and maybe you need to tell your boss to let you off. I said, so now you're telling me how to run my household? I said, you're going to pay my bills if I take Saturday off so that I could be in the cartwork? So I stopped going to the hall, and I started, um, because I had already been looking at, um xjw websites um and i and at first you know i was going through that cognitive dissonance in my you know in my in the back of my head the programming told me you shouldn't be doing this but then the, the the intuition in me the common sense in me said this feels right so spiritually and intuitively i was being fed and so it just changed my whole outlook and I started to wake up. I was like, this is a bunch of nonsense. This organization is just about controlling people. I'm um, This one elder who I'm still friends with, he told me that this one brother, he came down here to branch office, appointed him CEO. They sent him here to this congregation. They sent him with a letter. The circuit overseer had come and told them that this is your new CO. You know what they did? They took a vote. And they decided not only not to make him an elder, but they they went totally against what the branch office and the circuit overseer had done. So I said, now I'm dealing with a congregation that does what they want to do. And um, it, it took the circuit overseer coming back and threatening to dissolve the whole elder body for them to follow their instructions. So this is the kind of stuff that started waking me up. And the final straw for me was both my parents, my mother died a few months before my wife and I got married. And then when my dad died, I received no support from the brothers back home and from the brothers down here. And I hadn't been to the Kingdom Hall in about three, four years. And I went to the Kingdom Hall one day and this one brother came up to me and he says, how you doing? I said, do you really care? I said, that's a that's a question that when you ask somebody how they're doing. Do you really care? I said, you haven't seen me in almost four years. I said, but when me and my wife was dating, you was all in our business. I said, but now you haven't seen me. I said, do you really? I said, let me ask you a question. When you go out knocking on doors, do you tell people, well, if you stop coming, if you stop doing this and that, we ain't going to support you. We don't want nothing to do with you. But that's the truth. I said, you call me your brother. I said, you're not my brother. I said, because um, I got brothers in a fraternity I'm involved in. They send me emails. They got a reclamation process. They trying to reclaim brothers. They actively try and encourage brothers to stay involved in organization. I said, this organization doesn't do that. And I said, I came down here. You don't know my circumstances, the situation. So what I ended up doing was one night I was sitting home and I was on this. I was on the. Uh, Baronia Pickett's website. And I don't know which which lecture he was giving, but I just got filled with so much anger. I went to the hall. This is when they was locking the halls at once the meeting starts started. And um, this one brother was outside. He was like, Hey, brother, so-and-so, it's brother Clark, how you doing? And I said, I'm good. I said, Um, uh, he said, You okay? I said, I said, no. And it was like just as the meeting was just about to be over. So we he let me in the hall. And I, and after the now I'm in street clues. So I went to the coordinator. I said, I want to see all the elders in the library. So all the elders except for two came to the library. And I said to them, I said, Y'all, I I, I really wanted to say some some choice words, but I said, Y'all full of nonsense. I said, I've been down here X amount of years. When I was dating my wife, you guys were all in our business. I said, now I have lost well. my mother, my father. I said, I've struggled through a lot of things. I said, not once did I get a phone call, no shepherding call, nothing. I said, and y'all, I said, is this really about the end? I said, and I read the scripture um about if you lose one sheep, you leave the 99 and go. I said, I said, do you this is what you really do to people? I said, There's no love. I said, what does the scripture say that you will know that God is with you? Because you'll have love among you. I said, there's no love here. I said, Jehovah's Holy Spirit isn't here. This isn't his house. I said, because you treat people with such disregard. I said, if they don't show up, it's like out of sight, out of mind. I said, and that's the reason why. You ain't got to worry about me coming back here. And I said, I'm not going on a campaign, preaching to people. Don't go to the hall. I said, but you ain't got to worry about me coming. And I ain't been back since then. So... It's been five years since I've actually went to a meeting on a regular basis. And, um, you know, I just, for me, my wife, we have a a great relationship. Um, I didn't want, I'm not going to say much about my wife, but I told you, we, we just understand that she's active, I'm not, um, we don't talk about religion. Um, but my wife, see, this is how the universe works. I married somebody who's from the organization, right? But somebody who didn't grow up in it. But she got to see from my dad and from the people that I grew up with why I'm the way I am. So she doesn't she doesn't judge me. You know what I mean? Like she supports me. She actually, when you guys first called me, we, we got into it. But she said, you know what? I support you in that because you need that. She says, you need to heal. She said, for me, I'm going to continue because it works for me. You know, But I, if you never come back to the hall, she said, but the life that I had 15, 16 years ago that was so self-destructive, she said, I'd rather see you do this and continue on your path because my life has changed so much because I just started to take responsibility for my own healing process. And I'm at a point where, you know what, they see this video. <laughs> like like I said to you, when we started talking, I said, I'm not disassociating myself and giving them the, the authority to label me. That's I still true. have a few people in the organization that I deal with. The elder that just took us out to the jazz festival. He calls me maybe every 30, 60 days he may call me. You know what I mean? He's good for he, he. I respect that. And I told him, I said, you're doing what God's telling you to do as far as shepherding the flock. I said, that's, I, I can there's two or three elders in this congregation, there's two really that I got respect for. I said, because they have called me, they have reached out to me to see if I'm doing okay from time to time. And this one brother, it's funny, the coordinator, when he found out my story and he found out how the elders, my wife said, she went to the hall one day and he gave a talk. And three or four elders had to walk out. He said, "You're running Jehovah's people out of this congregation." Oh yeah, treating people, you should be ashamed of yourself. You need read the scriptures, and it, you know the brothers had to. But since then, they've dissolved. They brought elders from Philly and New York and D.C. They brought elders here because the the territory here is very rural, and a lot of times they, they needed more people who were semi-retired and retired that could help them, you know, as far as working. But now that's because COVID shut down all of that, but the congregation has changed, but you know, I'm not, I'm done. Um, yeah. You know. you,
1: you've been through a lot, Darren. Oh my yeah. God.
2: Yeah. And see, people don't know. They just, you know, when you mention my name to person that knows me, they'll just say, oh, he was this, he that, but they don't know what I dealt with. And that's why I said I needed to tell my story because people need to know, The truth about the truth you know i i don't hate the organization i just know that it's done a lot of damage to people and there's there's hundreds of thousands of us kids who have gone through so much because of the culture and the indoctrination and and how our parents um critically misuse and manipulate their children um i think the the scriptures talk about do not be was irritating your children. You know, like there was a talk, the last assembly I went to, the brother gave a talk about um, building building fire resistant materials or something was some kind of talk, but it was at the assembly. So they expounded on it. And, and my dad started crying. He had to walk out because that day he admitted to me and my wife, he was like, he said, you know what? He said, I ruined my son. You know, he said, I realized I did a lot of damage to you. He said, There's, he said and I and I know that I'm going to have to pay for that. He said, but, you know, I, I just need to admit that to you. He said, I ruined my son. He said, you know, I put you in a, in a instead of letting you go off and, and and do what you wanted to do. And he meant well. You know, that's the thing I will say. My dad meant well, but his methods were not, his methods were not good.
1: You know what, too? Um, Darren, I remember you stated that the Jehovah's Witness kids were doing the same thing that the (laughs) worldly kids were doing in the neighborhood. And it's interesting because everybody knows that it's like kids do things when they're young and then they get to another, to a certain part of their life where they, they, um, pick up the pieces and they go off to college and they become captains of industry and they do all these things that normal people do. But with Jehovah's Witnesses, they're not allowed to do anything because they're always waiting for the end to come. They're they're never given an opportunity to, you know, um, exercise the strengths Mm -hmm. and the talents that they have. So, you know, it's a normal life. I mean, because you talk to a lot of kids, you know, a lot of kids smoke reefer and drink, you know, they weren't supposed to drink. Is that, that's what they thought they were supposed to do at mm-hmm. the time. But it's like talking to you, it's like the Jehovah's Witness kids never recover.
2: Mm-hmm. But, listen, you know, listen. I
1: wonder about the other kids. You know, I wonder about these other kids that weren't witnesses. Where are they today?
2: You well, know? the thing is, like, going back, when, when my dad found out I was smoking weed, he realized 20, 30 years later, and and between the time he found out, and see my my dad, my uncle, my uncles, they hung out. We call them the Brad pack, right? They would take us. I would go to my aunt's house in Jersey City, New York, or whatever. And they would take they would take off going to the store supposedly to get ice or whatever. They'd be gone. They come back 11, 12 o'clock at night. Now these dudes is hanging out in bars. They smoke weed. They whatever. But my uncle exposed my dad one time because I remember. My cousin came down. See, I wasn't allowed to spend any time around my cousins other than, and I I need to go back to, because my grandmother's, my my mother's mother came into the organization, and my grandmother, my father's mother moved to Trenton with us in 72, and she later became a witness and a full-time pioneer, but both my my father's mother came out of the church, and what I found out later was, as a full-time pioneer, my grandmother had three sisters four sisters but the the oldest sister was deep into the church and so when my grandmother would go spend time with her she would go to church with my aunt and she did that for years until my my grandmother came into the organization and see then when they went to Jersey City or they went other place they would go together and that was kind of her her pioneer partner her witness partner they lived in the same building. But I didn't know all this. There's so a lot of stuff I started talking about my family as I got older. Like when my, when my my uncle came down and I wanted to go. I'd never been to my uncle's house. He lived in Long Island. And I asked my dad. And my dad chased me out of the house with a bat. And I was like, for asking to go spend a week, my cousin could come down here and spend a week, but I can't go spend a week at my uncle's house. The reason why was I didn't notice. But my my uncle and my cousin's mother would not marry so my father you're not going up there they're living together so what does that have to do with me going to spend i'm i'm 15 16 17 years old or i think i was 15, 16 or 17 years old what does that matter to me i'm not involved in that but when when that happened my uncle said man you fool of you know what he said does darren know that you that you were smoking weed, and you ruined. You turned over two cars under the influence of marijuana. But yet, you're gonna take this boy to the elders, and he ain't even baptized. So, that's the kind of stuff I look back on it now, and I laugh about it. But that that caused me a lot of anger, a lot of um, self destructive behavior. Um, you know, it was a lot of things that happened to me. Um. in in retrospect, that I've had to come through and realize and understand that that's not my fault. I don't have to own that. Um, You know, I just was a child who grew up in an organization that was extremely, strictly indoctrinated. And so that's what my parents used to try to raise me. And because they didn't accept it, set the example, it did even more damage. And so as I got older, it turned me into an unproductive, self-destructive person in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, once I once I understood that and I got some relief from the guilt and shame of religion, because a lot of, I'm not, Joe's Witnessing the only ones that do this to their kids. Um, you know, I just started to heal from that. So that's one of the main reasons I wanted to tell my story, because I want people to understand how you can heal from this and and what you can do to get through um these challenges and um you know a big part of it is letting go of the guilt and shame um letting go of the doctrination and understanding that this is a man-made religion it's run by men and what's dangerous i just had a conversation with somebody the other day um he saw some of the stuff i was posting on facebook and uh Started questioning me. I said, "Listen, I said you didn't grow up like I did, even though we grew up together. I said well, you didn't grow up like I did. I said you knew how I grew up. I said and for me, I look at disorganization like I look at some of the other things I was involved in. I don't ever want to go back to it. And so I moved. I moved on, and my life is so exponentially better. Like I'm so I'm so much more at peace with myself. I'm happy. Um, I can look in the mirror today, and I'm not." full of guilt and shame um you know my self-worth my self-esteem you know because the organization just it just does a job on people and they have no identity and then when they find themselves in a in a crisis like the book crisis of conscience they don't know what to do they don't know what to turn and um i was doing a graduate paper and i i did a uh it was on religion, and I looked up some information on the Jehovah's Witness organization in Japan and China. and something about that Asian culture is a high rate of suicide and alcohol, um, high rate of suicide, one of the highest in those countries, is among Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and it was, it was it was astonishing for me, and it's, they had all the statistics and you know the empirical evidence um, to prove that. But yeah, the society, they'll you know, that, that um, talk about apostasy, you know, when you look at how they label people, they don't even attack the issues. They don't even address the issues that people are talking about. They just label people. And it's the same thing that the government does, you know. Um, and I started looking at terms like the governing body, you know, and this is, this is a corporation. You know, you have presidents. Like, it's funny, they didn't want you to be involved in school. With any government, you couldn't be part of student government, student body, but yet they they call themselves the governing body. And when I looked at the governing body, it it talks about a group of people that has the authority to exercise government over an organization or political body. And it really spoke to political body because they associate governance with politics. But yet the society calls their leaders the governing body. So you gotta look at it from a common kind of sense. They're they're really telling you who they are and what they're about. It's right in your face. You gotta open your eyes and see it.
1: Well, Darren, you yeah. have really you have really opened up and given your poured your heart out, and your story has been very compelling. I mean, it's a lot, and I think a lot of people yeah. can resonate with that.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: We talked to so many people that have been there from, you know, from the lower end to the upper end of what you're talking about. And then all in between.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah. yeah so- I, I
2: never served as a servant. Like I before I got this, just a fellowship, like the next time I, they told me the next time the circuit overseer come, they were going to recommend me. But by then I was having some issues and I got this fellowship. I never served. Like I, I the only thing I handled on mics, I had parts on, I was in the dramas and stuff like that. Um, I used to read, I used to have the book studies in people's homes. So I read with the elder, you know, I I did microphones. I had some privileges, but I never was a ministerial sermon elder. Um, I auxiliary pioneered a couple of times, but I never held, I, I, you know, never had it. Went to Bethel a couple of times, but, you know, I never believed this stuff. Even from the time I was a little kid, I never believed it. I just went along you know for 40 something years almost 50 years i just went along I went along even and that's that's a hell of a thing to have to deal with knowing you're doing something that's going against your true nature your true your true intuitive self but see what people don't realize is that you can't separate god and the governing body you can't do that because it's the same they te- they're telling you that they're speaking for jehovah yeah, when, when when they get caught on the carpet with their doctrine and and imperfectness, right? They they want to use it. Well, man isn't perfect, but yet they're talking about God, Jehovah is perfect. So what's it's either what either you're making a mistake or God's make a mistake, right? Which is one of the things you guys say all the time. Like you get them, you, you paint them in the corner, and it's like, what can they have no it's it's funny, it really is. It's it's like they have no recourse but to say, Well. You know, just trusting trusting Jehovah. That's but, right. But you're trusting them then. <laughs> Right. You know, you can't separate the two. That's and true. Technology is just really exposing them because it's really doing the job. They you know, I was watching uh one of the videos you guys posted about uh the 1914 and all that and I watched something, you were talking about the apostates and how they label apostates and they never address the issues. They always, they and they're they're so carefully scripted. Like, this is so divisive. You know, people just can't see it. They cannot see it. It's sad. It is. is. I think this is
1: a really good therapeutic session for you. Yeah, it is. And um, and I really feel like people, once they can get this off their chest, I mean, we've got emails from you and stuff, and you were like, you know, like, you know, some of the things that you said in the email to us, I hear it coming out, mm-hmm. what you're saying, but I really feel like you you really got it out now because you're actually talking about it. Yes. You know, oh, yeah. which is good.
2: Yeah. And it's people really need good. to, you know, it's like it's like recovery. It's the same thing. Like I was telling you with recovery from anything, right? This 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 process, there's steps to it. But the but the most therapeutic steps are letting go and talking about it. And telling somebody else about it Because you carry so much weight And so much burden And and what's destructive about carrying that Right Is the guilt and shame and, And all those things that are toxic to you Intrinsically You have to let go of And understand that You didn't cause it But you're responsible For what you do from this point on So I got to a point where You know what I'm not looking for anybody to feel sorry for me Or whatever But people need to know the truth and the truth is not bashing in the organization. The truth is the truth. The truth never changes, right? Two plus two equals four. One plus one equals two. It never changes, but the truth that they're talking about always changes. You know, every time you turn around, they're talking about new light and, and this and that. And I'm saying, wait a minute, but you're talking about this is the truth. So how does the truth change? You know what I mean? I was born black 50-something years ago. I am still black. You know what I'm saying? they ain't changed. <laughs> I you know I, 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 I I'm my father's son I say some crazy stuff but <laughs> it is what it is it doesn't change right right it never changes so if it's the truth it doesn't change we
1: want to thank you so much for being on our program and telling your story that was very compelling, compelling absolutely story. so this has been lady c and
0: this has been JT
1: and we'll see you all on the next episode
0: thank you so hey, much man I tell you it was good it was interesting Take
2: care. This program was sponsored by Critical Thinkers.